Rick, I, I really am starting to nail that guitar solo down. This is Jonathan Carl, ABC News Chief White House Correspondent on Powerhouse Politics. And this is Rick Klein. I'm the political director at ABC News. And I know for a fact John can't play a musical instrument. you got to come in with the drum a little earlier, Rick. you got to come on. you got to play an instrument. Neither can I. All right, all right. Well, this is good. Well, here we are. This is uh, this is pre-debate week, and I I, I got to tell you, um, Hillary Clinton is doing a heck of a lot of preparation for this, and there is no indication whatsoever that Donald Trump is uh, is is holed away in debate prep. As a matter of fact, he actually is adding more campaign events between now and the debate. You you couldn't get. Two more different candidates and two more different styles than Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And and they're playing exactly to form. I mean, what would you expect from Hillary Clinton other than to be buried in those briefing books and doing hours of debates and mock debates and the cone of silence around them for debate prep? And Donald Trump, hey, you know, I'm reading some stuff and I'm talking to some people and, you know, we'll see how it goes. I don't want to do too much. I don't want to over prepare. He's bringing around homework. He's not necessarily doing that homework. And, you know, it's going to be just that freewheeling, John. Everyone keeps saying, what do you expect? I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, that that's the nature of this campaign. It's the nature of the live television event that we're talking about on Monday night. I, I don't ever remember there being anywhere near this, this kind of anticipation. But I do know this. We have a hell of a podcast uh, scheduled. We have somebody who's actually been up on the debate stage, Michael Dukakis, Democratic nominee in 1988. He's going to join us talk, us, talk to us about that experience and his advice to Hillary Clinton. Dukakis owns two of the most memorable debate moments in the history of televised debates, uh, one, of course, that that uh, that question from uh, from Bernie Shaw about the death penalty that some people thought uh, you know might have sunk his campaign, a single question in a debate, and also one of the great Saturday Night Live skits of so, all time. Does he get to own that? That was John Lovitz, but does yes. he get to own it? Okay. Yeah, you know, right, I mean, it would be, I mean, you know, I mean, it was it was it was good, it was good stuff. Definitely memorable. And we're also going to talk to Maureen Dowd, who's got a new book out, The Year of Voting Dangerously. John, this year feels like it's made for Maureen Dowd. It's made for the collection of characters in this campaign, the two New Yorkers who are going at it, made for her sensibilities, her observations. And, you know, these are two folks that she knows very, very well over, you know, quarter century plus. And I'm a little bit of a Maureen Dowd groupie, so I'm looking forward to this because, you know, she doesn't do a lot of interviews. The only reason why she's out doing some interviews now, she's got this this book out. But, uh, we are going to ask her what it's like to go into Trump Tower and sit down with Donald Trump. God, wouldn't you love to be a fly in the wall for that conversation? She's done it several times. Maureen Dowd sitting in Trump's office at Trump Tower. Yeah, it's trem- it's, a, it's a tremendous thing to think about uh, because you, you have the kind of charm that you think Trump would turn on and that kind of thing. And, you know, Maureen Dowd uncharmable. She, she knows how to resist those temptations from Donald Trump. And, of course, she's written so acidly over the years around about Hillary Clinton, going back to her days uh, as a White House correspondent for The New York Times, even before she was a columnist. Uh, and, and this, you know, I think she, she got ahead of a lot of the storylines in, in putting this book out in a collection of her columns now the year of voting dangerously uh and uh, because i think it encapsulates a lot of the a lot of the questions a lot of the concerns that we have around what's going on in this country right now even before election day even as just we stare down here over the last seven weeks so let me get you on the record here uh, i'd like to hear your prediction for the debate audience there's been some wide-ranging predictions uh obviously it's going to be huge what do you think how many people actually watch this thing 99 million people 99 watch million this. so that's 
that's less than a Super Bowl. Less than a Super Bowl, uh, but but you know, but but about four times as as big as any of the primary uh, debate audiences, and I, and I believe by far the the the, the single biggest uh, political related event that'll ever be televised uh, in American history. Now, I actually, I you know, John, I I don't know. I and I say ninety nine. My initial inclination was one hundred and one, and I downgraded it based on some conversations I've had recently with um, with people who say. I'm just sick of these guys, or you know, oh, I'll just see it on Twitter afterward or something. There is there's an element to this whole campaign of uh, of the train wreck that you can't look away from, no matter who your candidate is. That you, you know, it's an amazing show, but people really are sour on these candidates. They're not going to watch to wave. The, it's not like a Super Bowl where you're rooting for the Broncos, or you're rooting for the Seahawks. There aren't many people rooting for either side here, but you can't look away. It's just that big a spectacle, that big a show. So I, I, I shade my prediction down just slightly. John, what's your number? I, I think it's going to be uh, approaching. I'm, I'm very much where you are. I think it's going to approach 100 million, but probably not go over 100 million in terms of the broadcast audience. Because the other factor here is, you know, you have the broadcast audience, which is what we're talking about here. But you also have people that will be watching it on various live streams, will be following it in other ways. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I, I think you have a little bit of that factor. But, it, but it's going to be it's going to be huge. Uh, you're right. These are have become the two least popular presidential candidates, uh, major party nominees that we have ever seen in the history of polling. But there is that fascination with the race and the fascination of what it will be like to finally see them both on the stage together after they have said such horrible things about each other. We've never seen that. I mean, we've seen rough and tumble campaigns, but we have never seen campaigns where both of them have, 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 uh, have portrayed each other in, in the absolute most, uh, you know, I mean, the harshest light ever. And and to me, what's fascinating among so many other things, John, is who goes there first. They've all they both said it from afar. Who's the first one to take a shot? Uh, my my presumption would be is that that Lester Holt, the moderator, doesn't egg them on, and that you, you kind of leave it to them to do the first. Who's the first to t- to use the other other one's name, and then to use any of the the very sharp language they've th- that they've employed over time? Now, Donald Trump's been talking a lot about this and saying, if she's nice to me, I'll be nice to her. We'll have a cordial uh, exchange of ideas. That's not what this campaign has been, <laughs> yeah, though. Yeah. I mean, Lincoln Douglas, right? Right. This is not, this is not what these guys and this this race has been about. So you know, how long does it take for that to to, to get into it, does Trump go in thinking people are looking for a show, or does does Trump go in thinking they're looking for a president? And and he's had a uh, an interesting uh, couple of uh, really, really interesting past week. You've had the story about the Trump Foundation revelations um, that that are that look. I mean, it's an entirely different scenario than the Clinton Foundation, but it's every bit as messy, maybe even messier. Yeah, that's right. And I think the the scrutiny, and it's coming pretty late in the game here, of the Trump Foundation, uh, from just from the public accounts, and we should, you know, Dave Farenthold at the Washington Post is the person that's leading the charge, and we should shout out for his reporting. Uh, Just what is known in the public record now, beyond what looks bad, that actually is bad is is remarkable. You have the the twenty five thousand dollar donation to a group supporting the the Attorney General of Florida right before she set to decide about whether they're going to investigate Trump University, and now the revelation that he wrote checks upwards of a hundred thousand dollars plus as part of legal settlements that he incurred on the business side, on his personal side of things. He had the Trump Foundation write that check. Uh, that is really bad stuff, and and we haven't even heard the Trump folks deny that that's what happened i mean what they've done is they've attacked the reporter right 
Which they do, but 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 the, but but without saying, I mean, right. saying that this is false and wrong, and but but not not saying, well, what what is wrong? What are the corrections? That's right, and, and you're fascinated to hear if that comes up because, of course, the Clinton Foundation has been a major source of Trump's wrath. He talks all the time about being about it being a pay for play operation and uh, friends and allies getting rich off of it in a way to to curry favor and uh, to to try to influence things. And you know, there underneath his own control is a Trump Foundation that hasn't done nearly even an iota, a speck of the, the documented good work of the Clinton Foundation, and that has all of these extremely sketchy, potentially illegal transactions. And, and we also learned uh, that the President of the United States was born in the United States. That, 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 that's also the kind of setup Check. for this. It, 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 <laughs> it seemed Trump wanted to get that out of the way uh, before the debate. I, I, I'm not convinced he did. Are no, you? I mean, I, I'm I'm curious as to how it comes up or whether it comes up. You'd think, gotta come you'd up. think on one it's level it has to come up. up, but it is a settled thing that doesn't really have influenced their their ability or their you know their ability to become the next president of the United States. Although the racial overtones make it legitimate as well, and and it's a backdrop of yet another one of these police shootings. It's just a, such a familiar reaction uh, that has drawn the sharp contrast between the candidates. So that's all added to this volatile mix going into the debate. All right. Well, let's get right to our first interview. Again, one of my all-time favorite columnists, Maureen Dowd. All right. And joining us now, the great columnist and writer Maureen Dowd, author of The Year of Voting Dangerously, The Derangement of American Politics, the New York Times' very own Maureen Dowd. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So... I, there, there's so much to uh, uh, to talk about this week, but I've got to get right to the to the big uh, the big joint appearance with Don King. What is the Maureen Dowd take on uh, on Don King as kind of the ambassador to the African American vote for Donald Trump? Oh, it's so crazy! You know, I saw him wandering around the halls of the Republican convention, and um, it, it, I Donald. Trump has gathered so many people in his campaign inner circle who who have criminal records or, you know, are going to jail for something or were questioned by police for something that's nuts. And in this case, you have an actual uh, convicted murderer. I mean, that's that's yes, that's pretty high on the list. Um, Right. Exactly. It's crazy. So, so you, uh, I'm, I'm sure you, you caught this, but, uh, but Trump was doing a little tweeting about you. Um, uh, I, I, you know, <laughs> the neurotic, dope, wacky columnist who makes things up. I, I, I thought he kind of liked you. Um, yeah, I was really disappointed by that tweet because I felt like he hadn't put much effort into <laughs> giving me, you know, a good nickname. <laughs> he, he calls all women reporters that he doesn't like wacky and neurotic. So I was hoping I'd have something more distinctive, like Pocahontas or Sleepy Eyes, which he uses for Chuck Todd. Um, but I just got a generic one for women. Uh, you know, we I have in the book, I've covered him since 99, when he, you know, had his first foray. He dipped his toe in the water about... Um, presidential campaigns and we went on a trip and he was dating Melania then and he was you know I asked him what makes you think people would vote for you and he said because I get really high ratings on Larry King and he said you know everything was the ego arithmetic so he said a lot of men hit on Melania 
So he was counting the number of men and the number of times his name was on the GM building. So that hasn't changed. But I guess I I just said something on my book tour that set him off. But I, I was braced for that. I knew that would happen. So let's let's talk about ego arithmetic and and about the what motivates him because he's been a public figure you know, long before ninety nine even he was a well known probably for forty years at the creature of the New York tabloids. What is it? What's essential about him that that to your mind hasn't changed since those days? And you see it even when he's tweeting about you. You know, a technology that didn't exist when he was first in the tabs. Yeah, exactly. He. Um I know it's funny that a 70-year-old guy is the one to kind of bring social media into the campaign world in this essential way. He well the the ego arithmetic hasn't changed. In those days he would also say, you know, that ratings or whatever were the reason why he should be elected president. So it was still everything was being sublimated to his ego. So um, his ideology is basically his ego. I mean, he would donate to, you know, candidates of both parties. And basically it was like what would benefit his business. So flip it to to Hillary Clinton, who you've also covered for a very long time. And and you've written some classic columns on Hillary, many of which are are, uh, collected in in the book. What what has and hasn't changed about her over the quarter century or so that you've seen her at very close hand? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Well, I start in the book, you know, with my coverage of her as a news reporter when she was the wife of the candidate, Bill Clinton, in 92. And we went to a revolving restaurant in Kentucky and drank white wine and talked. And, you know, she was charming then and looser. And, you know, Trump has his wall, but then she has an emotional wall, and that wall gets higher and higher, you know, as she went through all the scandals in the White House. And uh, she she has, she is an idealistic public servant who wants to make the world better, but then it's kind of braided with this other darker side where she sometimes makes decisions from a place of fear and insecurity. And then she kind of trips herself up, like on the health thing, whereas David Axelrod said it was more about stealth than health. And so something that's a normal thing, like getting sick on the trail, because she gets so defensive and secretive about it, snowballs into a bigger story. And that's been the same pattern since, you know, she's had that same pattern of secrecy since healthcare and whitewater. And then they just snowballed into much bigger things because she stonewalled on them. Still kind of amazed she found those billing records, uh, you know. Yeah, it's always, it's like the emails. It's always the records appear, they disappear, they don't exist, they come back. It's like a magician or something, ledger domain. So you were among the first, I think, who uh, saw that Trump was going to be a force, a serious right. force, not just a not just a sideshow. And I uh, remember the column that, that you wrote uh Pointing out that um, you know Jeb's uh, Jeb's campaign symbol was Jeb exclamation point Hillary you know was 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 Hillary and then you know Trump uh, Trump's logo out there was Make America Great Again it didn't have his name on it so that you know the, the the narcissist who loves having his name on everything was actually running a campaign that was uh, less uh, less less self centered and, and and about him than than Hillary and Jeb what can you 
br- bring us inside what what it's like Cause d- during during that time period. I mean, you you, you went and saw him uh, at Trump Tower. You've done that a number of times. What's it What's it like when Maureen Dowd shows up at, at Trump Tower for uh, for an interview? <laughs> well, it's so funny because his office is like an infinity mirror. You know, he has pictures of himself in Playboy and wherever else, Time, New York Times Magazine, just papering the whole office. And then his desk is all full of um, magazines where he's on the cover. And then he orders up from Hope Hicks, his press secretary, you know, the top 30 stories about him. So they're printed out on his um, desk. So the whole office is like this kind of pure, you know, uh, odyssey through his ego. And and is he one on one? Is there a, a certain mischievous charm to him? I mean, it's it, it, you don't get the same Trump behind closed doors in that kind of setting as we see on the on the trail, right? Yes, he can be fun and charming, and you know, I asked him once, "Why are you running?" You know, it didn't seem to me a wise decision to um, trade in a perfectly good reputation as this kind of. Uh, a fun huckster for a reputation as a scary Hitler. You know, and I said, why couldn't you run more like the person you were in New York all those years, who was not, you didn't associate him with hatred and bigotry. You know, he he had a cartoonish reputation, like a Batman, you know, character or villain or something, but not hatred. And uh, he he said, well, he started out, I guess, you know, with the birther thing and then the the wall. And then he got heard the roar of the crowd and he just kept going in that direction. But it was almost like just getting on a boat that was going to some very dark places. And so now I don't think people can see any of that uh, charm that he used to have. So do you think he believes that stuff or he just or or he just uh liked the response I mean for for instance I I think that I mean, I've got my theory on how he got started on the birther thing I think it actually goes back to 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 an appearance he had on the view in 2011 and it kind of just came up he was asked about it it seemed like he hadn't given it much thought at all, but he said, yeah, I should like to see that birth certificate and, and Whoopi Goldberg. It had been a very friendly interview. If you go back and watch that interview, again, it's fascinating because you do see the the other Donald Trump you're talking about. I mean, he is greeted so warmly. He's kissed by all the hosts. They're, you know, joking, having this wonderful time. And then he drops the birther thing in response to a, to a question, basically in, 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 a, in a kind of almost an offhand way. And, 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 and you know, Whoopi Goldberg goes nuts on him. And then you know, he, he, he hears the response of the crowd out in the uh, alt, oh, alt-right that's, land. That's so interesting. I'm going to watch that. Yeah, I just think it was, you know, he's a real estate salesman. He's just making the sale in the moment and saying whatever it takes to make that sale. And, you know, when he came to the Times editorial board uh, a few months ago, he said, oh, I would be the kind of president the New York Times would like. I would be so, I'm so flexible. You know, and obviously we've been doing these editorials just saying he's unfit. (laughs) He didn't convince you, it sounds like. But I think, yeah, so in his own head, you know, he thinks it's, and and he always said to me, 
you know, Maureen, you know I'm not a racist, you know, and uh, so I think in his own head he thinks he's just putting on this mask to effectively get where he wants to go to make the deal. But what what he doesn't realize is there are consequences to his words. So little Muslim kids are getting bullied and Muslim women are getting beaten up. And the Times had a story the other day that violence against Muslims has gone up more than any time since after 9-11. And he doesn't understand that what he says at the microphone becomes who he is. So making the sale, closing the deal, I mean, he, he, you, you'd agree that he knows the market pretty well then, right? Yes. I mean, I think he, he has like this bat-like sonar, both to search out his opponent's weaknesses, as he did on the debate stage, but also it has to be, he has to be given credit for identifying and broadcasting some of the issues that the Republican Party was not focused on that people were really concerned about, like immigration and, and um, you know. Beating the hell out of ISIS. And, yeah, and, and trade issues, like that globalization was being presented as this bright, shiny thing, and no one realized that there was this whole swath of people who were furious because for them the American dream didn't exist, or even the Muslim ban? For you know, we never polled on that before, but when we did, you find two thirds of Republicans consistently supporting the concept. Well, I think that you know my siblings have essays in the book, and they're conservative and why they're going to vote for Trump, and it's it's hard for them. So it's like hearing what Paul Ryan must be thinking if you could actually get it out of them because they, you know, they're appalled a lot of the time, but they still want to stick with their party. And, um, you know, I think that Trump voters, some of them are racist, of course, but some of them uh, are just angry for right reasons. For instance, the economy almost went under and most Americans didn't know what derivatives were. And we went into this war in Iraq that we're still mired in and most Americans didn't know what the tribal Sunni Shia thing was about. So they trusted their leaders. And then Ted Cruz comes along and tries to burn down the capital he's working in and there are all these anarchists and nihilists and obstructionists and there was a woman quoted in the times yesterday who said she doesn't care if trump you know is a dangerous reckless choice to vote for she's going to do it because now she's almost become a nihilist you know i mean the washington was so dysfunctional it's turned voters into you know nihilist like let's try something else the trump voters are saying so your sister uh had been a Trump person, became a Bernie person, uh, dabbled in a little communism. I think you told me at one point. So where, where is she now? Is she is she, is she <laughs> no, at communism she, or is she yeah, at Trumpism? She right, right. She started as a Democrat because she was at JFK's inaugural, and then she fell in love with Reagan because she lived in California when he was governor, and then she fell in love with W and volunteered at his convention, and then she got disillusioned by the Iraq War and voted for Obama, and then she got disillusioned with Obama and is back with the Republican Party. But then she took a trip to Cuba and fell in love with Che Guevara, so she was a communist for a couple of days. <laughs> and, and, and where is she now? 
she jumps on and off the idea of voting for Trump every hour on the hour. When he says something racist or offensive, she, you know, she, Trump, I talked to Trump about this. He said, is your sister still voting for me, you know, a month or two or a couple months ago? And I said, no, because you uh, retweeted that unflattering picture of Heidi Cruz. And he said it wasn't that unflattering. And I said, yes, it was. It was a terrible thing to do. Why didn't you just apologize? And there was this long silence. And then he goes, okay, I apologize. <laughs> hey, you got an apology out of Donald amazing. Trump? That's news. Big, big I news. I got the, yeah, I got the first apology out of him. So I, I have to ask you one thing before we let you go. Uh, the, the, the news, it was, it was so wonderful how it came out. Uh, the news that... Uh, that 41 George H.W. Bush uh, uh, is saying that he will vote for Hillary Clinton. Now, few people, uh, I, I believe, uh, uh, wrote more interesting stuff about George H.W. Bush than you. I mean, I remember you writing about him campaigning up in 1992, and I think it was in New Hampshire with the uh, – uh, the uh, no the nitty- message I care. <laughs> you message, yeah. And the, don't cry and the, for me, Argentina. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The nitty gritty dirt band was there, and he tried to pronounce with the itty bitty gritty ditty, whatever That's, it was. Yeah, that was hilarious. Um, so what 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 what's your sense on what's going on with uh, with ninety two year old uh, George H W Bush and the Bush clan? On this? Well, I have an original, a long original essay in the book. I'm really proud of, and I re-reported the presidencies of the first President Bush and the second to kind of make sure I was right about this weird Oedipal loop-de-loop that led to what I think is the worst foreign policy mistake in American history. And I went down to have lunch with him a couple years ago, or three, in 2012. And at that point, Trump was deep into the birther thing. And uh, I asked him what he thought. And, well, he called him an he used an epithet. Uh, and uh, he was so disgusted about the birther issue. And that was way before anyone thought Trump would win. And so then he was very nice to Bill Clinton and President Obama, who treat him really well. And so then, you know, I feel really bad for him because he had to watch this man that he already thought was an idiot destroy his son, who he always thought should be president, and he wanted to live long enough to see him be president. And so, you know, he used to throw his shoe at the TV screen when Trump was on. And uh, I don't know, I'm wondering if um, Bill Clinton, master politician, called him and had a word with him and talked him into voting for Hillary. But I'm not surprised. You know, Trump apparently was hurt that the Bushes didn't come to his convention because he doesn't really understand that when he, you know, trashes people and belittles them, then they get hurt just like he does when, you know, people criticize him. Yeah, it struck me as the least surprising news of maybe the entire campaign. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, because, you know, Barbara refers to Bill Clinton as their son from another mother. Right, right, right. So, you know how he ingrate because he didn't have a father of his own, he ingratiates himself with these older uh, politicians. Absolutely. Well, uh, Maureen Dowd, the book, again, The Year of Voting Dangerously. It's always great to talk to you, and we hope we'll have you back on again. Aw, thank you, guys. Okay, John, let's take a quick break right here. We'll be right back with Michael Dukakis. 
If you like our podcast and want to check out some others from ABC News, check out abcnewspodcast.com. We've got a whole bunch of shows for you to listen to, so take a look. Subscribe to the ones you like. All right, let's get back to the show. So, Rick, we're going into the first presidential debate. The stakes are so incredibly high. You get the sense that almost nothing that happens between now and then makes much of a difference at all. It feels like that. I mean, this is these are always anticipated events, but this just seems like it's on steroids. I mean, we're talking about maybe the largest television event of all time. It's just another level of anticipation, excitement, everything around this first debate. You know, there are very few people in the world who know what it is like to prepare for one of these moments. I don't mean those primary debates where you've got a dozen people on the stage. I'm talking about the big general election head-to-head debates. The, with with carried on every network, the nation watching, nothing could be higher stakes in the campaign. But I know somebody who has actually been through this process and can tell us what this moment is like. Governor Michael Dukakis, former Democratic nominee for President of the United States, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. So you you had this. You 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 know what this is like. Can you can you bring us? Into, the, into that debate prep room, I mean, what's it like as you are getting ready for a moment uh, that, that, you know, may well be the most important thing that happens in the whole campaign? Well, I don't want to take it lightly. And obviously, uh, when you're running for the presidency, you want to be as good as you possibly can be in the debates. But uh, most of us who run for the presidency have been in politics for a long time. And if you're a former state legislator and a three-term governor and uh, now presidential candidate who has gone through a lot of debates, we had uh, something like 40 of them in our primary in 1988, this is not the first time you've done it. No question that it's really important, but um, you prepare the way you normally prepare. And... uh, and so I did uh, a good deal of preparation, some rehearsing. Frankly, I thought I overdid the rehearsing for my second debate, and it's one of the reasons why that was nowhere near as good as the first one, to tell you the truth. Um, so but you overdid you it. This is not the first time you've done this. And uh, sure, it's very important. But uh, lots of other things are important in campaigns, including your field organization and the people that are working for you. And... My own view is that while this first debate especially will be quite important, um, the candidate that has a superior field organization is going to win this is going to win this thing. Uh, I think that's Hillary. Uh, I don't well, think she definitely has the superior field organization. We, we, we can tell you that. I mean, there's 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 very little evidence of a, of a strong field organization. on the So other side. so that I think is going to be very important. But this is a big one. And um, you prepare for it. You try to be the very best you can in the debate. And you hope that it, um, it works. I have to tell you, however, that uh, in all of the debates that I was involved in, remember, I ran for governor four times, um, and for lieutenant governor, as well as for the presidency. I never really could tell you at the end of the debate whether I did well or not so well. Somebody else had to tell me, <laughs> and it and it's interesting. But um, 
That was true in my gubernatorial debates. It was true in the presidential debates. You do the best you can, but somebody else has got to tell you, you did well, you didn't do well. So there's there's this incredible contrast in preparation styles between these two candidates. You mentioned maybe over-preparing for, for one of your debates. We have Hillary Clinton, who is essentially off the trail and, and is spending, we're told, something like 19 days in debate prep, and we presume with full-on mock debates and briefing books and the rest. Meanwhile, Trump aides can't get him to do his homework. He's not doing any mock debates. Uh, where, what, what, what kind of impact does that have, do you think? I mean, obviously, Trump has a lot less experience than Hillary Clinton, but you think he ends up regretting not going through the motions of mock debates. Well, he's got his own style. It's obviously unique to him. Um, you know, it's maddening in some ways because you never know where this guy is. Um, he's obviously a pathological liar, and uh, we've seen that over and over again. But so far, it's worked for him, and I guess he probably figures, look, it's working pretty well, so why not continue? Uh, my only concern on Hillary's side is over-preparation, because you do want to be spontaneous, feel spontaneous, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see how she deals with uh, the Trump style, which uh, is unique to him, no question question about him. So uh, my advice would be, um, sure, prepare, but um, she doesn't need briefing books. I mean, she knows the issues. She knows them well. I mean, she spent time in the White House. She was a United States senator and a good one, and obviously has been campaigning for months and months. I think it's really a question of trying to determine how you deal with Trump and his approach in a way that convinces people by the time that debate is over that he has got no business being in the White House. And I'm curious, you've watched these evolve over the years, but there's some things that are fundamentally the same about these debates. Obviously, politics looks a lot different in 2016 than it did in 1988. But between the lines of these debates, they, they haven't changed that much. But are we missing something in the way that these debates are consumed and analyzed? What has changed over the last almost 30 years that maybe we won't notice if you watch that tele- television event uh, on Monday? I think when it comes to the debates, not an awful lot has changed. I mean, fundamentally, it's a debate. One of the things that has happened is that now we almost regularly have a single moderator right. as to, as, rather than a panel of journalists. Nothing against journalists. I've got two in my family. We like them, too. And I love them dearly. <laughs> but um, I, didn't, I never liked the, the, you know, the three-reporter thing. Um, I think the single moderator, preferably with a live audience in the studio that's carefully selected to represent people that are genuinely undecided, is a much better format. And uh, I hope that's the way we go with with some exchange uh, between the candidates. I mean, when I debated, you didn't have an exchange with the candidate. You talked to the reporters and the panel reporters. And I think that's a mistake. I mean, I think uh, a much more open kind of format, because you have to have a very, very good moderator. Uh, in order to make it work, and, and that's a challenge for whoever's going to be doing the moderating. But um, but I think uh, a much more open format with a single moderator and a real opportunity for folks to, to mix it up in the best sense is a much better approach. And uh, even better if you have 
a, li- a live audience uh, who themselves have an opportunity to ask questions. I mean, I don't know whether or not that's going to happen in any of these debates, but one of them. I think, um, I, think it, I think it's much better that way. So you you are part of one of the more memorable Saturday Night Live skits uh, yeah. ever on uh, on, on debates. Let's play let's play the punchline very quickly. You have that, David. Governor Dukakis rebuttal. I can't believe I'm losing to this guy. <laughs> so. Uh, I, you, you, you gotta believe in it, and, and Hillary Clinton's not at this point losing uh, to Donald Trump. But uh, but 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 I imagine a variation of that thought uh, must go through her mind as as she looks over and 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 sees and sees this guy, uh, you know, as the Republican nominee. What's what what's the single most important piece of advice that you would give to her for uh, for for prepping for this? Well, I've 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 already said it. Um, how do you plan this effort? So that by the time that debate is over, people say, this guy has got no business being the president of the United States. And I'm not going to offer suge- suggestions. Look, if I if, if I had done such a great job, I'd be talking to you in another capacity. So, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> We'd be doing the interview at the presidential library. <laughs> but um, Right. But, um, uh, you know... The the American people have got to understand that this guy really has no business being president of the United States and uh, would be a dangerous and very risky choice. And uh, I can't tell you exactly how to do it. A lot of it has to do with what happens. But um, I think that's the challenge for her. And, and you, you also uh, are the, the, the moment in your debate with the Bernie Shaw question, which, if you don't mind, I, I, I want to play a yeah, little bit fine. of that, uh, which got second and third and fourth guests over and over again uh, after the debate. Let's play just a little bit of that. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during... All of my life, uh, I don't see any evidence that it's a deterrent, and I think there are better and more effective ways to deal with violent crime. First of all, what, what was going through your head when that when that question is is being asked? And that was that was the very first question in the debate. Look, if you're an opponent of the death penalty, as I have always been, you're asked that question a thousand times, and. Uh, but not like I that. Probably, I mean, the, the, well, I think I could probably answer it as if it had been asked me a thousand times. Um, I've had people come up to me and say, you know, we heard your answer. We thought it was fine. Um, but obviously, a lot of people didn't think it was fine. And uh, I think it's pretty obvious that particularly in a debate of this kind, uh, answering it in a fairly matter of fact way, obviously, <laughs> was, was not the right thing to do. There's but, a lot. Of, uh, there's a lot of attention that's paid to the moderators, and they get scrutinized. I think rightfully as well. I mean, looking back, do you think it was a fair question? You've been asked about the death penalty many, many times. But were you really asked many times if your wife were raped and murdered, how you'd feel about it? Well, not in that form, but uh, um, certainly variations of that. I mean, this, this wasn't the first time I'd been asked a question like that. Obviously, I'd been asked it many times. Um, but I thought it was a perfectly fair question. I mean, if you oppose a death penalty, then, you know, that's the kind of question people are going to ask you. And uh, I didn't see anything. Some people thought it was unfair. I didn't think it was unfair. So what, what do you think of the role of the moderator is when it comes to fact-checking? This has been a bone of contention. Is it the moderator's job 
to correct false uh, statements made by the candidates, or is that kind of up to the uh, up to the other candidate? I think in a debate format, it's probably up to the other candidate. Uh, on the other hand, in the case of the uh, Matt Lauer interviews, uh, where not a basically it's not a debate, and uh, it was a relatively short thirty minutes. Uh, I mean, first spending another fifty minutes on this stupid email thing, which, in my opinion, is such a crock. I mean, there isn't anybody in Washington that doesn't have a private email and uses it. Uh, and Hillary's two predecessors as Secretary of State had it, used it. Um, lots of people do. Uh, there's not the slightest evidence that uh, American national security was compromised in any way because you had that system. And, uh, you know, I'm with Bernie Sanders. I'm sick of it. It's uh, utterly irrelevant to what's going on. And to spend half of the 30 minutes talking about it, I just thought, and I'm a fan of Lowers, but I just thought it was a terrible mistake in judgment. Um, but I do think that uh, whether it's Hillary or uh, Trump, that uh, an individual interviewer like Lauer certainly ought to be a fact checker. I mean, <laughs> if one of both of these folks tells you something that, that you think is off the wall, you ought to say so and question them on it. And, uh, and I think uh, there's no reason under the sun not to do that. In the debate format, uh, there I think uh, you probably ought to try to rely on the candidates to to point out the problems and point out the inaccuracies or maybe the, 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 the absolute falsehoods and, uh, and, and let the debate flow in that sense, but uh, not on individual interviews. I mean, I think uh, in that case, uh, whoever's doing the interviewing has an absolute right, in fact, uh, a responsibility to be the fact checker. All right, Governor, before we let you go, I want to ask you, you mentioned having journalists in your family. One of them is your granddaughter, Allie, who's one of our, our tremendous colleagues here at ABC. And I'm curious if you remember, and I, I don't believe she was born at the time of your campaign, if you remember how she first came to be aware of uh, of your presidential candidacy, of your role in history. Um, it, it just it seems to me it's been 30 years now almost, and for your grandkids, what has it been like for them to to, to, to realize, wow, Grandpa Grandpa was a big deal. He was almost president of the United States. Well, actually, her mother was pregnant with her during the campaign. So she really experienced this campaign. So she, was, <laughs> yes. she experienced it in utero. <laughs> and it's not a surprise that she's now working with you guys and deeply involved in reporting, public affairs, and so forth. And I'm very proud of her for doing so. Um, but I'm sure from a very early age, she was not only aware of me, but, uh, I mean, I remember her father when he was seven and in the second grade, uh, during a campaign where I guess the kids were at least doing what uh, a second grader might do to look at a campaign where John kept interrupting the teacher and correcting her. <laughs> and finally she said, John, you come up here and teach this class because you know a lot more about this than I do. <laughs> and he was... He was seven, <laughs> and and so uh, I can't you know give you chapter and verse, but I'm sure by the time she was seven, she not only knew that her her papu, as we call him, the grandfather in Greek, uh, you know, would run for the presidency and be governor and that kind of thing, but she was probably wise in the way of politics far beyond her <laughs> her, her second grade peers. I can tell you that. Uh, governor Michael Dukakis, the 1988 Democratic nominee for president. Thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Great to be. Thanks. All right, that's it for Powerhouse Politics. Thank you for listening. 
Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. We will catch you again next week after the first presidential debate.